our men's annual camp out. We had a just a terrific time together in fellowship and fun and, and uh, relaxation and just really solid teaching uh, with uh, Daniel, bringing the message to us. And so it was a big blessing and refreshing. And uh, we had some great weather as that cold front came through, made it very nice around the fire. So we're grateful if you prayed for us. We're grateful for that. And thank you for that. So we're back in our study in Second Corinthians in chapter 6. A couple weeks ago, we introed that, and I'll refer to some of those things as we move into our text but if you'd look with me, uh, we're going to read through the entire chapter as is our habit as we begin a new section uh, so we can really start to begin to see what the Holy Spirit would have us to know. So look there if you would, Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. I'll be reading from the New American Standard, so if you need that version, you can find it around you. Otherwise, I'll give you verse cues and we can stay together. It starts, and working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 2, for he says... At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. Verse 4, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, verse 5, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, verse 6, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, verse 7, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, verse 8, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, verse 9, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things, verse 11, our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, our heart is opened wide, verse 12, you are not restrained by us, but you are restrained by your own affections, verse 13. Now, in a like exchange, I speak as to children. Open wide to us also, verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light and darkness, verse 15. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, verse 16. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 17, therefore, come out from among their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Verse 18, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Stop right there. A rich passage, of course, one that uh, begins to reveal its wonders right away. As we read through, we begin to pick up things from it that perhaps you didn't notice before, and the Lord begins to work. And as we saw in our intro time, last time, like all faithful ambassadors of Jesus, as Paul looks at himself in that way and calls us to that as well and says that that is our job, Paul rejoices in the honor of his call. He rejoices in the opportunity he has to do what he does. And also, as we saw in our introduction to this new section, Paul has a broken heart and tears as often as he has excitement and anticipation over the way people respond to the truth that he so passionately preached. 
Uh, because the hardest part of the ministry for the minister, no doubt, has got to be when those who have experienced the love of God and those who have had the clear teaching of the Word of God don't respond to the truth. And those who have the Holy Spirit and those who understand the importance of instruction, those who know of the coming Bema Seat Judgment, those who know they'll someday stand before the Lord, those who profess to read the Scriptures, those who know the blessing bound together with obedience, and those people still don't obey. That's got to be the hardest part uh, of the ministry. No doubt it still is. It was with Paul. It still is now. That's the most discouraging part, uh, the hardest uh, to rid yourself of, if you will, coupled together with also being the greatest mystery as you look at them and understand what they understand. To know that they would choose not to do those things is a great mystery. And, and it is that kind of constant roller coaster that make up the day-to-day of full ministry. It's the ups and the downs. It's the successes and it's the disappointing responses. And how to handle those ups and downs seems to be Paul's focus for this Corinthian church and, and on down to us here in this chapter. And so that's what we're going to look at as we go through. This real experience on a daily basis explains a lot of Paul's writings. And maybe you've noticed the ups and downs in your quiet time in the epistles written by Paul. For instance, in, in Philippians chapter 3, and verse 1, he says this. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That seems up, right? Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we, verse 3, are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So it's up. It's up, up, up. It's, you know, rejoice and watch out for these things. It's a great thing. And uh, be excited about your position in Christ. Celebrate because you can and do worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And in that worship, place Jesus in his right position. Rejoice in all of that. This is a great place to be. And exalt the fact that you know that it isn't in your flesh where you have the power. And then just a few verses later, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, he says this. He says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. We saw very similar responses here in this chapter we just read, didn't we? Uh, you're controlled by your appetite, not by the Holy Spirit. And so, so just a few chapters later, you go from exaltation and rejoicing in the forward movement of the ministry to, and I have to tell you this, even weeping. And so it's a, it's a roller coaster. Uh, and, and Paul says, you know, I tell this weeping that there are many in the church who don't set their minds on Christ. They're not living for him who died and rose again on their behalf. They're living for the world, and that's the roller coaster of emotions that's bound up together in ministry. And the longer you're in ministry, the more you know that so well, because that's how the church is sometimes. And so uh, when Paul is talking to the church, he's revealing his heart here in 2 Corinthians, and he's talking about how he manages all this, and you grab those things by how he expresses himself. And our text this morning describes for us the highs and lows of ministry and, and how to deal with disappointing responses as well as, it tells us that I think as well as any passage we can find in the New Testament. And what I hope we can see here is a series of encouragements from Paul's heart to the church on how to find some balance between the highs and lows. And we're, and we're going to find those principles in how he expresses these disappointments and they're going to come in the small sections. And we'll just grab them because they're, they tend to stick out and they're important to us. They seem incongruous with the experience of the ministry. Now, in, uh, back in uh, verse 1, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, we saw 
the very first one, and it's how he expresses himself coming out of chapter 5 where he says you've been given the You've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You are ambassadors of Christ. And then he says this very thing, and you can see that he's incorporated that into his very thinking. See, It's not just, okay, great, I'm an ambassador of Christ. Okay, I've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And then you just kind of walk away from it like it's just one more thing you added to, to your list of, uh, of uh, you know, acknowledgments. But 2 Corinthians says, and working together with him. So it's just assumed that you're what? Working together with him. We also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So the first clue from Paul, as he reveals his heart to us on how he keeps his balance during the ups and downs of ministry, is found in that first part of the verse, working together with him. And here we saw that principle, and that's a feeling of honor, I think, or a feeling of, uh, it's, it's a blessing to know that you get to work together with Almighty God. And the principle is really found in the words, uh, working together, we've seen that before, and this time it's in verb form, present active participle. Synergontes, it's the verb, uh, finds its root in synergos, it's where we get synergy. And so we see this word a lot, we've talked about it many times. The idea of a collaboration, an interaction, accomplishing something, that's the idea. The word in the scriptures is translated fellow laborer many times. If you see that, that's that word, synergontos or synergos, depending on whether it's an adjective or a verb. A helper, a fellow helper, fellow worker. Anytime you see that, that's the word you're looking at. And, and this is how Paul gets through the highs and lows. First step is how he handles the disappointing responses. He says, we are working together with him. See? And of course, as we said last week, he's calling them back to what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. He said, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Then in verse 19, he says, he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Uh, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. This is where Paul says we're working together with him. We've been given the job to do. He incorporates it right away into his comments and says we're working, we're laboring with him. It's, it, it's the proper perspective, the honor, the dignity, the privilege, if you will, of doing just that. It's exceedingly beyond anything we could hope for. And if we begin to understand, as Paul wishes us to, that, that when we read Working Together with Him, if we understand that we are involved in a cooperative effort with the living God, that changes our perspective. If it's just about you, see, and immediate response back, feedback, if you will, or exit polls, then it's going to be difficult. If it's just your work, you're going to be constantly beat down, and you're eventually going to be burned out. If it's just about your flesh and your power to accomplish something, and we're going to see more about that in just a minute because Paul talks about that, then it's just going to be one disappointment after another that leads to your burnout because you've got the wrong perspective. But if you realize you're working together with him, see, that changes a little bit of the perspective. And I want you to try to remember that next time you present the good news to somebody. You are working together with him, see? Try to grasp that thought the next time you're discipling someone or admonishing someone who doesn't really want to hear it or encouraging them to walk in holiness or to be in the wordy state. When you do those things, you're working together with God. We then, as workers together with him, understand that our ministry is a work, and it's a difficult one. Look back on the times God has called his people back to himself. We're going to see more of that in just a minute. It's a work that requires faithfulness, and it's a work that requires diligence. And as we looked at this word before, we work as subordinate to the master. Okay, so we're an under rower. Uh, we're a servant. In fact, the word deacon is a table waiter, the very lowliest of servants, a galley slave. That's how someone who is 
in the ministry, someone particularly who brings the word is called a galley slave, an under-shepherd, as the case may be, working together with him. And he's the master of the ship, and he's the master builder, and he's the chief shepherd, and all of those things, see? And, and he's the boss, and he accomplishes all of the eternal impact. But the simple fact is that he stands together with you, and you are doing the work he himself has committed to you, the ministry of reconciliation. And as we saw, in his own self-interest, he has committed to you the work of reconciliation. As we saw, the way that verb works out, it is for God's self-interest. Why? Because God's always been a reconciling God, and now that you are reconciled, he's committed to you the work that he's always desired to do. And that's pretty encouraging, I think, as we think about how this all works out, see? It's in his own self-interest, because he desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, it's a great passage, one that you can remember, of course, because we've talked about it over the summer as we've talked about it at the Great Commission, but Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm, what, with you always, even to the end of the age. And so right from the beginning, right from the very first command to go out and do what you're supposed to do, I'm going to be with you. I'm not leaving you by yourself. Go and make an appeal to them as an ambassador. I've given you the word of reconciliation, just to kind of draw in everything else we've learned, see? Beg them on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. However you want to put that, that's how it looks, okay? And lo, I am with you always, working together with him, Paul says, then he just incorporates that right in. And the whole time you're doing it, in this age of grace, I'm going to be working with you the entire time, see? And it, that's a pretty significant honor. And I think it should have a wonderful stabilizing effect on the laborer. That's what you think about when things don't go well, okay? You're, you're working together with him. Guess what? Paul wouldn't have had to write all these books if everything in the church went well, okay? But he had a lot of letters to write and plenty of admonition to give and correction. So understand, that's an encouragement in the work that you work together with him. And it's an honor of the ministry. That's what sustains you when the going gets tough. And, and that's what helps you in the middle of frustrations. It's the honor of all of that, see. And that's a, that's a, it's a volitional response, isn't it? Because that's not your fleshly response. Your fleshly response is, whatever. I, you know, I've got better things to do than this. I don't need this all my life, see. But you are working together with him, and that can help you in the middle of frustration. Now, as we just introduced this section last time, and then we were off a few weeks. I want to remind you of a few passages that illustrate this point so well. And these are the ones we didn't have time to get to last time, but they are so important to this encouraging concept. And you can uh, write some of these down. They're in your notes if you want just the passage, and you can write some notes about how this applies. You know, what does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? How does it apply to me? That, that part you can write down right now if you want. There's a couple things underlined that can be takeaways if you want them. So first one, 1 Corinthians 3.9. Here's our same word, for we are God's, what is it, fellow workers, that's, that's our same root word, uh, synergoi. You are God's field, God's building. So the point continues in our passage, of course, but it couldn't be stated any more clearly here, could it? You're not alone. God is there working with you. A little bit later on, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, he's speaking about how the church functions to gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, he says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord, and there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. So we have different giftings, but the same spirits at work. We have 
uh, different applications of those giftings in ministry. We know this as we look around. Uh, somebody who, who is working in the ministry as a minister has different giftings perhaps than someone else who is working in, in a pulpit as a minister, but we have different applications of those giftings in ministry, but serve along with one master, see? And, and then this last part, then the end results will differ between us. Uh, sometimes the Lord's doing one thing in one church or one thing in some little small group or one thing in some other place and something completely different in some other place. That's not your job, okay, to figure out that. It's just your job to do what you're supposed to do. The end results will differ between us, but God is at work in all of it. And he is determining the gifting and he is determining the opportunities for ministry and he's bringing about the eternal impact, see. And, and you have the honor of working together with him. That's just a wonderful truth, and if you really understand that, then, then I would just say as an application, I don't know why you wouldn't want to find a place to serve in this ministry. I mean, just to be real, to, to have the privilege of working together with God, and yet it seems as if the modern church is so busy with so many other things, and we get this comment a lot, you know, I would serve, but I just have too much going on in my life right now, see? And I respond to you to say, but you know that anything outside of that which pertains to the kingdom you're not working together with God, you're just on your own, okay? So part of your life is missing, the part that matters for eternity. I get it that you have to, you have to take care of your family, I get it that there are things that call you to, to uh, work and, and do things that are apart from what's here, but it shouldn't be at the expense of working together with him. Now, in Ephesians chapter one, there's another great illustration. Um, verse 19, Paul wants the church to know the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe these are in accordance with the workings of the strength of his might. So get this, when you are working together with him, your co-laborers with God, this power is at work in you too, okay? And then later in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul reminds them of this tremendous synagogue. He says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So, beloved, I would say to you, as you read that verse, you may not see the results you want to see. And you may not know who you've impacted either. Your goal may be too low. And your vision may be too crowded uh, uh, by the cares of the world and by the worries and what you've taken on to yourself disproportionately with what your responsibility level is, okay? But Paul assures the church that there is much more happening when you're working together with him than you know to ask or even think, okay? And that's pretty encouraging news in difficult times. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it, uh, Paul says this. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, Just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's the part that's behind me. For it is God who is at work in you. It is God who is at work in you. That is the reality of your life. Present active indicative. This, this is the reality of the believer. God is at work in you. As you come into obedience to the word of God, God is at work in you. Okay? For it is God who's at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God has his own self-interest in mind when he works together with you because he is a saving God and he has appointed you the word of reconciliation. See? And what, 
And what is that self-interest? He's reconciling, and he wants you to reconcile, and he's always been that way. So give yourself to ministry in your sphere of influence and find something to do and do it with all your heart because Paul said to the church in Colossae, remember 3.23, he says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. And not your own will. He works together with you. You're not by yourself, see. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Another great illustration. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. Did everyone Paul talked to respond positively? Not if you read the ends of his letters, you know for sure that they didn't. But did that stop him from doing that? No, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every, did every man he admonished receive it well? No, typically when you have to admonish someone, they're walking in disobedience. So right away, the first response is gonna be less than, probably less than what you'd like it to be, right? Admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. It's always Paul's desire, working together with God to see people complete, see? For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Paul gave himself to ministry. He worked fervently, making the most of every opportunity, but it was never far from his mind, this great honor he had in laboring together with him. And it appears, I mean, if you think about it, as you think about examples in the scripture, Paul worked as hard as anybody could work. I think you could easily say Paul was no slacker. He gave himself to the ministry, constantly doing things uh, to make sure that, the, that people were admonished and taught and that they would had the opportunity to, he would have the opportunity perhaps to present every man complete in Christ, see. He worked hard, but he always remembered that he worked with God, working in him and through him. He was God's co-worker, see. That was a fantastic truth. It was never just all about Paul, see. And that's our example. Work as hard as you can, see. If you're in ministry already, work as hard as you can work. That's always our example in the scripture. It's never like, you know, hey, I had a flat tire or I'm a little sleepy this morning. I can't make it to my ministry. Beloved, are you kidding? Work as hard as you can work, see? And, and then remember who's working with you and through you, and that can bring great encouragement to you, see? Don't be easily discouraged just because things are difficult. Now, this truth is everywhere apparent in the ministry of the apostles in the New Testament, so we'll change change speeds a little bit because the ministry that went on in the New Testament is really the ministry of reconciliation and, and that is the ministry of God which he has given to men and the apostles were the men that God was working through in the New Testament and, and it's not that you say, you know, okay, God, I may let you do a few things. It's not that, okay. It's, it's uh, as Jesus said in John fifteen five, I am the vine and you are the branches and he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing, see? The life flows from him. So it's not just we work together with him, but everything that's of eternal value is going to come because of our relationship to him. We're just co-laborers with God, and it's an elevated position that we have and far more than we deserve. And it works a lot like this from Mark chapter 4, verse 26. If you really think about it, uh, Mark 4, 26, and he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seeds upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night, and he gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows how he himself does not know. 
Uh, the soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. We sow because we're given that job to do, as we were reminded by Ben over several weeks of the summer uh, during the Sunday school hour. We, or we disciple, or we teach, or a combination of those things, whatever the case may be, see? But, you know, it's illustrating of planting, you know, I'm reminded, and I like to plant stuff around my house. Many of you know this. Uh, I reminded about this in my office a little bit ago. As I thought about, you know, you cast a seed and you go to bed, it comes up, and you're like, well, how did that even happen? Um, you know, people, people write you years later. Those of you who have been in ministry a long time, you, you have this experience. People write to you years later, and they'll say, you know, Pastor Parker, I just want to thank you from back in, you know, 1998. You, you said this particular thing to me uh, when we were going through this passage, and it made a huge difference in my life, and, and I'm doing such and such now. And I think back, and I think, I don't, I don't remember saying that. I don't remember being in that situation. I, don't, I wasn't that smart. I wouldn't have said something that, that, uh, that, you know, that correct and whatever. No way. But, you know, that's because the Lord's at work. See, he, he's the one that puts the correct thing in. And that's what I pray before I come out. Lord, I, I'm gonna, I want your, your people to be mature and equipped for every good work. And so whatever it is that I'm going to say that's going to make them take them away from that, just restructure it so they get your word because that's what we want to rely on. And I was remembering somebody gave me some, some uh, roots uh, of a tree one time, and, and I was really glad because it was something I wanted, and I planted it um, in, in you know, the early, early spring, and you know, fertilized it, it was ready. And it didn't come up, and I forgot all about it. I mean, I didn't think about it again. And then the next spring, it actually came up, and it was like, popped up my I was about, I had the weed whacker, I was about to, I was going to mow it off, like, whoa, that's where I planted that thing. And now it's come up, the second spring, see. And so, how did it happen? I don't know. I, I thought I did what was right the first time, but it, I mean, the Lord's the one to bring those things up, right? And I think that's really the, the understanding, you know, it, the parable says, we go to bed and we get up and there's life and we don't know how. And, and, and any faithful preacher, any faithful Christian is going to say, to himself, I don't know how that happened, see. Um, I don't know why what I do results in life, except that I'm working together with God, see. That's the only way that's going to happen. You know, I can throw the seed out, but only he can give life. You know, I can teach the truth, but only he can make it come to life in the believer. He's the only one that can make it resonate in your heart, see. And, and it's incremental, too, just like the parable says, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head, right? It, it, we, we want everybody, we're very impatient, see? We want to see everyone mature, like Paul says in Colossians 1.28. But the whole thing is his work in his time. And, and, the, and that's the ministry, and that's the wonder of the ministry and the frustration. And it's very humbling, and it's very exciting. You serve the Lord, you're working together with him, and it comes back to you how lives have been transformed and how people have been changed and how the seed's been planted and new life has come and, and growth has occurred and you know those parts aren't you, see? And, and you're a co-worker with God and all you can do is, is throw the seed or, or you're an under rower or you're a shepherd, an under shepherd, right? Uh, or a steward, a table waiter. Remember we looked at that? Paul, Paul talked about being a table waiter and, and you just take what's been, a table waiter just takes what's in the kitchen See, that's been prepared by the Lord and walks it over to the table where all the people are going to eat and tries not to drop any of it in the way, okay? That, that's, that's how preaching, <laughs> did you know that? That's, that's, that's part of, the, that's part of the, the job of preaching the Word of God. You're just called a table waiter, right? And you just bring it over. And, and, 
And the mystery and the wonder of what God does is God's alone, see? God's the one who produces all of the stuff that's supposed to be produced. And, and we, can, we can get really excited about the privilege of working. We talked about this before, about working with people that the world exalts, you know, and if you're a student, you might get to have a fellowship with some doctor somewhere or, or some professor or get work under somebody who's an expert in the field, and you get excited about that, and, and it's okay. I mean, we understand that, but I would say in the same way, it's impossible to even compare to the fact that you have been offered this marvelous job to do, and the Lord of all the universe has said, you're a co-laborer with me. You're a co-laborer with me. And grab, get your mind around that, beloved. And I just wonder, again, how can anyone say no to the privilege of working together with God? But it is the truth in the modern church because we have many, many people who have never, ever given out the gospel. If we put up hands, how many have given out the gospel? You don't have to put your hand up. In the last week. Now, I'm not talking about saying praise the Lord. That's not giving out the gospel, okay? I mean, you praise the Lord and you should thank him for his goodness. Have you given out the gospel this week? How about in the month? How about in six months or a year, see? And beloved, if you're coming up with single digits, then you are not where you need to be. I'll just be real with you, okay? You're a co-laborer with God, and you need to change that portion. That's a volitional response, okay? Don't say to the Lord, Lord, make me a better witness, and then keep your mouth shut when you have an opportunity to open it. The reason why we went through that whole thing over the summer is so that you would have some some tools that you could use to begin a conversation that leads in the correct direction. And many of you have already established you've got other ways to do it, weigh the master and, and all that, and that's great. Begin to do it, okay? Because how can you say no to such a privilege? How can you turn your back on a ministry, ignore opportunities to throw seed? I don't understand that. How can, how can anyone turn their back on, calling, on a calling to teach or preach or be a missionary? How can anyone say no to all that opportunity? What, what is here on earth that compares with that, beloved? There's a place in Acts where Paul and Barnabas have gone out on what is called the Paul's first missionary journey. And, and God has caused a lot of things to happen, and there's been a lot of fruit. And, and, um, and Gentiles are turning to the Lord, not just Jews. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 4, it describes, in a small example, I think, what heaven will be like. Sums up their ministry like this as they come to Jerusalem to give an account in verse 4, it says, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and, mark this, they reported all that God had done with them. What did they report? All that God had done with them. And I think that, demonstrably, that this is what part of eternity is going to look like. Will you be able to say that? Sure, you should be able to account all that God has done for you. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, the ones he's redeemed out of the hand of the enemy, right? You should easily be able to say all God has done for you. He has provided your needs, every single thing that you needed in your life, he has taken care of. He's, he's good like that, and he's the giver of all good gifts, see? So you should easily be able to say what God has done for you, but I would ask you, what about what has God has done with you to further his kingdom? Because it's going to be pretty embarrassing if by your inaction you don't have much to report. I'd like you to hold your finger 
right here. We're going to be back in just a second, but turn to Luke chapter 19, would you? Luke 19, and we can see this point illustrated very well for us. Verse 12, I'll read and give you verse Hughes. So he said, a nobleman, so Jesus is speaking, he's giving a parable, which is a earthly story that illustrates a heavenly point. And so he's, they're going to learn a lot about how it works in this story. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Obviously, who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus, right? And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back, verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Verse 15, When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. Verse 16, The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. Verse 17, and he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You will be in authority over ten cities. That's a pretty big jump, right? But faithful in little, faithful in much. And so it's a matter of attitude. Verse 18, the second came, saying, your mina master has made five mina more. Verse 19, and he said to him also, and you are over you are to be over five cities. Verse 20, another came saying, Master, here's your mina, which I put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. Verse 22, and he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I'm an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. I'll stop right there. And there's much we could say about this, but I think the illustration is clear. Um, the master didn't argue with the lazy worker's evaluation of him. It wasn't a correct evaluation, by the way. He just said, so if you knew I was, which just means that isn't who I am, but if you thought that's how I was, then why didn't you X, Okay. But he just said, by your own evaluation, to the lazy one, he says, by your own evaluation, I'll just go ahead and judge you. So the master is the one who gave the investment money to begin with, no doubt, had trained his employees and given them instructions about what they wanted to do. And we know that's the case because we see that in the Gospels. But even if the evaluation was right, so even if it was true that you take up what you didn't lay down and you reap where you didn't sow, even if that was true, which it isn't, isn't that even more of a motivation to work hard than working for a benevolent master? Of, of course it is, right? If you knew he was hard, if you've worked for a boss who was very hard, you already knew that. So when he comes to evaluate, you've got your ducks in a row. If you have a benevolent boss, you would have your ducks in a row because you work for the Lord and not for men, right? And when you labor hard, you adorn the gospel and all of that. But the fact of the matter is that if you knew you had a boss that was hard, you're going to work hard to make sure that he's pleased because that's how it is. But here's the deal. Not only do we know that that's not the correct evaluation, he's a benevolent master, but also he works together what? With us. 
That's the part we know that's the truth as well. He gives us the investment and then says, go out and do something with it. And then says, lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. See? So doing very little for the kingdom doesn't put you in very good company. But many in the modern church act as if this day isn't coming in the way they handle their time and the way they handle their money and in their action line on obedience. It's as if none of this was true and all of it is, see? And we've taken some time with this phrase because it's just so important to the work of the church and for those who give themselves to that work. And the ministry may be difficult and it may be heartbreaking and it certainly has its ups and downs as we've kind of titled this whole section and highs and lows. But one of the things that takes us through all of that is keeping in mind the honor of doing what he asks us to do in the way he asks us to do and knowing all along that he assures us that we're working together with him. And at the end of the book of Hebrews, the writer summarizes that honor with these words. Here's what he says. He says this, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, mark this, verse 21, equip you in every good thing to do his will, mark this, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Just to clarify, beloved, God has equipped you to do his will, not your will, his will. And God is working in us through Jesus to do that which is pleasing in his sight, see? And that's a great way to put that, and that gets that in perspective, okay? You can't just do whatever you want and then say, well, I'm doing this for you, as if we, when we talked about before, how do you bring glory to the Lord? Well, it's not just by doing whatever. You only bring glory to the Lord if by what you do, the Lord's attributes are magnified in some way, you see? So, I think the writer of Hebrews captures it very well. He puts it very well. Whether from our view, what we're doing is going backwards, where the ministry we're at, it seems to be going backwards, and we have to go back over old ground again, as if that's not a common occurrence in the New Testament, particularly with Paul when we see phrases repeated over and over amongst uh, consecutive chapters. So maybe it seems like it's going backwards, and you've got to go over old ground again because the church hasn't learned it yet. Or whether, from our view, it appears to be moving forward in new victories and the Lord's opening up new doors of ministry to walk through. He is, by his unfailing promises, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. See, Whatever it is, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Now, now I know we see this. So, Paul goes on and says in verse 1, he says this. You can turn back to first, 2 Corinthians 6.1. So, working together with him, that's a great honor. He says, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So we see the second principle of encouragement during the ups and downs of ministry, which is a sense of investment or dedication. Some of the church of Corinth believers who had been reconciled were, mark this, not doing what needed to be done at the level it needed to be done. That's not surprising, is it? Because we still have the same problem in the modern church. They're not doing what needs to be done at the level that it needs to be done, see? And you don't want to be found in this kind of company, okay? We just saw a number of verses that illustrate that you don't want to be there in amongst the company of those who are not doing what needs to be done at the level it needs to be done, okay? Like the parable from Luke 19. So Paul wasn't content to let it stay that way, and that's the whole point of the writing. He was invested. He was passionate about what God had given him to do, and that passion, that investment, carried Paul through the ups and the downs, and in particular, this disappointing response. And the honor of serving together with him and the sense of investment or dedication are inextricably connected. 
being concerned about the state of the church, the state of the culture, and the church's impact on it, that's one of the ways you keep your consistency through the highs and the lows and the disappointing responses. See, the minister, and I, th I think you know this by now, but the minister is an urger, if you will, okay, to kind of coin a phrase, an entreater, a beseecher, a pleader. That's what he means when he says, we also urge you, see? We're working with him in the ministry of reconciliation, but also, what are we doing? We are urging you, see? We urge is the present active indicative parakaleo. You know that word. It's a word that describes the Holy Spirit's work with us. But here, we come alongside, Paul says. We call you to our side. We exhort to you or to listen and respond. That's, that's Paul's comment here. They're not doing what they're supposed to do, so part of the job uh, that is his job, and it's the job of a minister, is pleading for the same commitment over and over. God does that all through the scriptures, calling, calling for the same commitment. So, so you're his servant, see? You work together with him, and part of that work is pleading. So you do that work too. Why? Because you're invested. This is your investment. You're doing the work. You've been given the work of, of, of a, uh, a representative of God, see? And so what is them to do and for us to do what not to receive the grace of God in vain this is just and this is our next principle of encouragement for the ups and downs of ministry continue continue in exhortation continue if you will in in reminding so I would say to you do you want to avoid burnout do you want to avoid discouragement in the ministry to quote Dory in the movie Nemo just keep swimming 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 just keep pleading, just keep reminding, just keep exhorting. Because, beloved, did you know you work together with God? God's a pleader. Did you know that? It is all through the scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 12. We could spend two weeks just with this. Jeremiah 24, 25, 4. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on, in the land which the Lord has given you and your forefathers forever and ever. What did he do? He sent prophets over and over again with his words. What was it? Turn from your evil deeds. Walk with me. Do what I say. I'll bless you. You'll be able to stay in the land. You'll be enriched. Because, because obedience is tied together with blessing, isn't it? That's one of the discouragements in ministry. When you see people who understand what obedience is and don't do it, they also understand that blessing is tied to obedience. But instead, they walk in disobedience, and they make God look to the unbeliever as some kind of capricious, vindictive God because their life is in the toilet. Because the Lord chastens them and chastens them, and then they look at that person, that Christian, who's not representing Christ very well, and the world's standing over thinking, why would I want to be a Christian? Look at his life. But they don't understand that that believer is walking in disobedience and constantly under the Lord's chastening, and their life looks terrible, and it's a terrible example. But we know, right, from 1 Corinthians 11, even when they were taking the, the Lord's table in a way they shouldn't, even in chastening, the Lord proves that you belong to him. See, We understand that, but the world just looks and says, man, why would I want to serve a God like that? And Israel was like that too, right? And Moses many times had to plead with God, what will the nation say if you destroy us right here? Oh, he led them out of Egypt so he could just wreck them, see? So disobedience and walking away from what you're supposed to do doesn't make the Lord look very good. He doesn't need our testimony to look awesome, but, I mean, just in general, from the outside looking in, it's bad, see? 
So you've got a job to do, to plead, to exhort, and the Lord's that way, see? He says, turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given you and your forefathers forever and ever. And then in 2 Kings chapter 17, we see the same thing. Look at this. He says, um, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, here it is, again, turn from your evil way. Keep my commandments. We still, we still say the same thing, don't we, to the church? Turn away from sin. Turn away from disobedience. Keep the Lord's commandments. Why? It's, it's bound together with blessing. My statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, of which I sent to you through my servants of prophets. I gave you my law. I gave you my servants of prophets. They explained it to you. Do what I say. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? And yet, in Psalm chapter 78, we see this song written how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again, they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary. This is the nature of human nature. You are here as God's ambassador. See, And as we saw, to represent him, that's what an ambassador means, to represent him, to follow his instructions, to put forward his principles and his agenda. That's what an ambassador does. If you were the ambassador of the United States, you're in some other foreign country, Donald Trump sets that agenda and you do exactly what he says because that's what you're supposed to do, see? So don't be discouraged because you have to be a pleader because you're God's ambassador and he is. And regardless of your ministry, it might be, catch this, it might be your chief function throughout the course of your ministry, being a pleader may be your chief function. And there is indeed, you know, if that's the case, a certain amount of monotony to that when you have to go back over it again, right, and again. And Paul is pleading here and, and uh, not to make these efforts a waste. They receive the grace of God, but do the things you're supposed to do. It's not saying you're going to lose your salvation. It's just saying, listen, you receive the grace of God. Don't let it be in vain. All that work, and you've been given this word of reconciliation. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation, and you, you are God's ambassador. Don't, don't let it be all for, in vain, all the effort to waste. And, and the minister is going to feel this week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, in their heart, always, see? Sowing teaching and discipling and preaching, exposing them to the truth so they can understand it, the truth of salvation so they can understand it, right? The truth of discipleship and they'll embrace it, the path of sanctification, devotion to Jesus, constraining impact of, of his substitutionary death, as Paul said earlier in, in chapter 5, right? In 2 Corinthians 5, there's, there's a constraining impact of his love for us that should be guiding what we do. The truth of the coming Bema Seat judgment, so there'll be Build with the right materials. You're just doing this over and over and over so that they'll understand the urgency of it and the importance of it. And, and sometimes they reject all of that and it seems like it was all for nothing, see? And sometimes you watch them slip and slide and disobey and their life isn't what it ought to be and they can be very disappointing responses. And mark this, beloved, if you're not carefully understanding that this is always your job because it's always been modeled by God over and over, you may end up asking yourself if all that effort wasn't for nothing, see? You see? And so Paul calls them back, and he calls them back, and, and part of our job is to do that, see? That's the also work that we do. And just by way of illustrating 
that repetitive nature of Paul's ministry among the churches in 2 Corinthians 11.3. We're going to get there in just a few months. But I'm afraid, Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of what? Devotion to Christ. Right back to the exact same thing. He spent 18 months at the church, uncountable hours of worrying about the church and writing to it and meeting people and sending other people and, doing, and worrying about them. See? And then he has to write this. I'm afraid, you know, you're going to walk away from this and I'm going to have to call you back to it. Just like Eve walked and talked with God in the garden, and yet she was drawn away. Paul says, don't let that happen to you. Paul says, you have a job to do, this ministry of reconciliation, and God has committed to you the word of reconciliation. Uh, be about that, and don't let all that's been done on your behalf be for nothing. That's the essence of it. See? And then he reminds them of their benefits while he's exhorting them. And it, so he quotes the Lord, and he says in verse 2, look at 2 Corinthians 6.2. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And the first part of the passage is quoted by Paul out of Isaiah 49. It's, it's a remarkable passage, and so I want to read it to you. The conversation is important to grasp, and it's, it's really a conversation between God and Jesus. And you'll see that in just a minute. And it concerns the future great saving act of God, because God has always been a saving God. And so he's talking about it back here. And, and uh, to kind of set the stage, the Lord is speaking to the Messiah, his son Jesus, and the conversation is recorded by the prophet Isaiah as if he were standing there witnessing it, and we know that he was actually standing in the breath of God, so he did get to, in some respects, witness it, but he's telling us, uh, and perhaps he didn't understand because we know from the New Testament they didn't always understand what they were writing down, but they wrote this down, and it's a conversation between God and the Messiah, and here's how it goes in Isaiah 49, 3, it says this, he said to me, this is God speaking to Jesus, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, so this is Jesus answering, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for, mark this, nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. So what's the issue here? So Isaiah is reporting to us that the suffering servant Jesus gives himself as a substitutionary atonement for Israel, and what did they do? They rejected it. See, so this is 700 years before Jesus comes. Isaiah is reporting this as a conversation between God and the Messiah, and what does he say? He says, um, Jesus answers back, I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely justice is due to me with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. So he says, you know, I was crucified, Instead of received as a Messiah, I was crucified, and yet my justice sits with the Lord, okay? Now, God's statement here, and this is one Paul quotes, is directed to Jesus, and listen to it. This is very encouraging if you're in the middle of difficult times in ministry, or you will be if you're not there now. Um, this is why Paul quotes this, okay? So in verse 8, he says this, Thus saith the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit desolate heritages, saying to those who are bound, go forth, to those who are in darkness, show yourself. Along the roads they will feed, and their pasture will be on bare heights. They will not 
hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. I will make all my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar and lo, these will come from the north and from the west and these from the land of Sinan. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Now, God says what? I have done all that I have done through you. And beloved, he says to him, it will accomplish all it was supposed to accomplish. All the way out into the eternal state, because we know that many of this, these things promised to Israel will not be seen until the thousand-year reign of Christ. Israel becomes to the forefront after the rapture, during the tribulation time, we see Israel transformed into the nation believing, and then all these things will accomplish, be accomplished. And, and God basically says to Jesus, your effort on behalf of Israel and the nation was not in vain. And for the Corinthian church, it's a reminder of all God has done to recall to their memory the gracious nature of God who always seeks reconciliation and to encourage those who labor. And we see then our next principle of encouragement as we're dealing with the highs and lows of ministry is keep that sense of urgency. You keep that sense of urgency. And these are volitional responses just like it always is. God's, God's laws, are his commands are for us. They're not for him, see? And the results of ministry are so important and the people that you minister to are so valuable that you literally run the extremes of emotion. And, and when they respond positively, you see that forward movement that's just so exciting. And when they slip backwards and it happens over and over through the years, it's easy to lose the urgency and the sense of intense need. And it's like that because the issues at stake are so great and, and you have really put more on yourself than you need to. See? And, and the the external results that are eternal are not yours. See, they belong to the Lord. And you just need to be faithful and do what you're supposed to do. And when you do that, the Lord is working together with you to accomplish his own will according to his own timetable. See? First the blade, then the stalk, then the head, right? And so Paul shows his urgency again for the hundredth time, if you will, probably way more than that, when he says, behold, now is the acceptable time, but no, now is the day of salvation. The Lord helped you, and now is the day of salvation. Have that urgency, see? And what he's saying to the Corinthians and to all of us in, in this is, this is no time for weakness, see? This is no time for vacillation. This is no time for feeble Christianity, see? This is no time to be deceived by false teachers either about salvation or sanctification because this is a saving time and this is an acceptable time and this is the day of salvation and this is not a time to waste, see? And this is a time to present the gospel that saves and this is a time to sow the seeds of the gospel that save and this is a time to wake up and see the seeds have sprouted so that you can teach the truth that sanctifies. This is this time, see? And you just do it over and over. Why? Because God's a pleader and he just keeps repeating himself so you get to do that too. Okay, and so he's so concerned that the Corinthians not miss this opportunity to do what they're saved to do. And so he just says again, listen, remember all that God has done and he hasn't done it in vain. Do these things, be about this time, see, act on this great ministry of reconciliation that the God of all the universe has always been about and has given to them and has promised to do with them. 
So you can see this foundation. This is the foundation of a minister who's been through the highs and the lows, a minister who's been through difficult times, frustrating times, discouraging times, who's had to go back and repeat again things that they uh, didn't want to repeat, things that you just think, I've said this so many times. We've been over this so many times. We've got to go over it again. This person's been through this over and over. Do we have to go back and do it? Yes, we do. And not from a haughtier position than they are, but from one who understands this is your job to call them back, to teach the basics again if you have to, to move forward. As Paul says, perhaps we can move past these things, he says in Hebrews, right? But if not, we just lay that foundation again. But whatever it is, this is our job, and this is how it works. And when we do it that way, the Lord is pleased. It might not look like what we want it to look like. But we can be useful during an urgent time to give out the word of reconciliation in a time where God hears and helps repentant sinner. It's still that time. Okay? And so we don't get discouraged. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to, to open your word up again and to, uh, to pray and to ask you to help us understand and be encouraged. Father, many of us have been uh, over and over beat down, discouraged, had some hardship, had to repeat things over and over again. We, Father, in our own selves, in our own pride, uh, tend to think that, you know, we, we must not be doing what you want us to do. It must not be going like you want it to go. We don't know your mind. We don't know what you're doing in the church, but we do know what you want us to do. Lord, help us to encourage ourselves in this way. Encourage ourselves from your word that these are the, this is the way that it works, and this is the way that's always worked. It worked this way with Israel. It works this way with the church. Paul gives us that example certainly over and over again. He gives us the example of hard work. Maybe that's where we need to start. Find a ministry and give ourselves to it. Perhaps we could do something different if we had all the spiritual gifts that the Lord has given to Berean, working in Berean. So, Father, I pray that you show us how to do that. Show us where you want us to plug in. We know you want us to. Just I pray that we'll take that step. And, Father, I pray that you will encourage and bind up broken hearts today, those who've ministered and, and been beat down, those who have been ministered to, uh, have ministered and have uh, had to go back over old things over and over. It seems like the same troubles spring up. Uh, and Lord, I pray that you'll just encourage us. This is how it is, and we can be encouraged that you are at work, and it's not in vain, as Paul quoted Isaiah 49, that your word that goes out that uh, will accomplish what you've sent it to do. And so, Lord, I pray that we'll encourage ourselves in that way, and we pray this uh, as a church, all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.